so uh, yeah, Advent. It's um, I don't know if anyone's been following on the Facebook group. Uh, we've had every morning, um, you know, a, a, a little blog about Advent, and um, I've been finding them really interesting. Reading them, I'm like, man, there's actually a whole lot more to Advent than I'd ever realised. Um, there's like this whole like beautiful apocalyptic kind of nature of it and the second coming of Christ, and it's kind of changed a bit of my thinking. I think I've been too stuck in the whole like Christmas thing, and I'm like, how did I miss this after being a Christian for like 22 years? Uh, anyway, so I never thought that 2021 would be harder than 2020. I don't know, has anyone felt that this year was tougher than last year? Yeah, yeah, I'm not making any like bring on 2022 uh, <laughs> declarations this year. I'm going to keep that one quiet. Um, you know, I'm not one to wear my emotions on my sleeve. They usually run pretty deep for me. Um, but this year I was given a gift that I wasn't expecting, the gift of grief. Um, and that, the effects of that are still lingering in different days. I still have days in the office where I'll be like, oh, this is different too. Like, this just catches you. Um, and I've bombarded God the last few months with all of my doubts and my questions. And I've spent more time than I'd like to uh, admit feeling the depths of defeat. Hustling up hope only for it to be dashed time and time again has been exhausting. Last year I read this e-book called um, Misfits Around the Manger by Joy uh, Vetterlane. And it sort of stuck with me this last year, this idea that those that were present in the nativity scene um, were misfits. They weren't heroes. They were humans just like us. And they were unremarkable. I mean, even just looking at the shepherds. They were just shepherds, but they just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Um, so this morning I just wanted to touch on a few of the characters that are in this book, Misfits Around the Manger, a few of the people that are around the narrative of Jesus' birth. In this season of uncertainty where peace feels like it's been stolen, where division feels painful, where constant pivoting is exhausting, just want to share a little bit about these stories that you might relate to. Um, so number one, come all ye who doubt. Uh, and we're looking at the little story of Zechariah. Um, so I'm going to assume with the Christmas story that for most of you, you'll be a little bit familiar, but Zechariah, he was, he was a priest, and um, we can read about him in Luke 1. Um, and when he was on his roster duty, um, an angel shows up and declares that Zechariah's wife Elizabeth will have a son. And it says that Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure that this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is well along in years. And then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand at the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you don't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. So if you're like with me, you might have heard the contrast between Zechariah's faith and Mary's faith. Um, after all, Mary was just a teenage girl. So her sort of saying, okay, God, um, <laughs> was great. And Zechariah was a priest. He should have known better uh, than to question an angel. Um, but a little bit of context, context there is that actually God hadn't spoken for 400 years. Um, so you can probably forgive Zechariah for doing a bit of a double take when an angel shows up <laughs> declaring the word of the Lord. Zechariah was punished with silence for nine months. But what if it wasn't a punishment? What if those nine months were a gift? Today we're scared of doubt. We shut down the questions that we might have internally. And we shut down the questions that others might have. We bypass honest doubt, we bypass pain, we bypass anything that looks less than faithful. And it's almost though by voicing our doubt, we're jeopardizing our faith. But what if silence from God is an invitation to address the very heart stuff that Zechariah was going through? What if it's that for us as well? In that place where there's only thoughts and feelings and God. 
And I wonder with Zechariah, how long did it take him to stop fighting and actually listen to God? Uh, I've been practicing, you know, silence. I've been practicing solitude for a couple of years this year. I've been really sort of wrestling a little bit with silence. Uh, and I find that I spend far more time uh, trying to avoid God uh, in those quiet times and actually spending listening to him. And I wonder for Zechariah, like, how long did it take him? Was it a couple of weeks? Was it a couple of months? I don't know. But, you know, after all, he was human, just like us. And, you know, we struggle with the weight. We want all the details, but even with the details, Zechariah was still doubting. Um, Henry Nouwen, he was a, a Dutch Catholic priest, among many other things, and he wrote, Patient living means to live actively in the present and wait there. Waiting, then, is not passive. It involves nurturing the moment as a mother nurtures the child that is growing in her womb. And Zechariah was invited into this waiting. Uh, in the book, Misfits Around the Manger, uh, Joy Vedelin writes, she says, I find it telling that the last sentences Zechariah uttered before his silence were filled with singular first-person pronouns. How can I be sure? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. But after his prayer, after nine months of silence, it is full of plural first-person pronouns to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days and guide our feet into the path of peace. Elizabeth may have been waiting nine months to birth a child, but Zechariah was waiting for something beautiful too. Um, in his book, After Doubt, written by A.J. Swoboda, he says, learning to walk through doubt and deconstruction and out the other side into reconstruction of an honest, humble, yet deep and robust faith uh, can flourish Oh, sorry, that can flourish with both serenity and power in a chaotic and hostile world, that is no easy jaunt. You know, God's not threatened by our doubts, and he doesn't even just tolerate our doubts. He's not frustrated by our doubt. There's an invitation to intimacy there, because God, after all, is delighted in you. Um, lately, um, Kerry's son, James, has been sending me these little videos with questions about the Bible, um, and I'm really loving them, and I, and I get to, so what I keep doing each time is I'll film an answer back to him, and I'll send it to him, and yeah, it takes me a little bit of time, because I often have to think about the answer, because some of his questions are quite curly, and they're just huge for an eight-year-old to be asking, but I take delight in that, and I feel like God is like that too. He delights in us, and so he delights in us bringing our questions, how hard or how easy they might be to him. And I imagine the nine months was pretty brutal for Zechariah. Uh, but in that time, he was being transformed for, from a man who was righteous in the sight of God to being someone who was filled with the Holy Spirit. Because um, at the end, we see that he is prophesying. Um, yeah, so he is transformed in that season of silence. And secondly, come all those who grieve. And we look at the story of Mary. Her story has been so sanitized I don't know if anyone else has found that. I've had kids. <laughs> I feel like when you read that story, it's been sanitized. An angel announces that she'll give birth to the saviour of the world. No big deal, right? She has nine months of pregnancy. She travels on foot over 100 kilometres to Joseph's hometown because their dictator, Caesar Augustus, ordered a census to be taken through the empire, probably for his own ego. Um, and all the Christmas stories are lying to you. She did not ride a donkey. The Bible says nothing about her riding a donkey to Bethlehem. Um, so imagine being heavily pregnant and walking 100 kilometers. Fun time. She gave birth in a strange and unfamiliar place. There wouldn't have been women around her that she would have known and trusted. 
She would have entered labour, I imagine, with anticipation and potentially some fear. I saw a post on Instagram yesterday from author Kate Armas, and I'll spare you the whole post because Ian told me off when I read it out to him. It was a little bit graphic about childbirth. Um, but she said, the nativity scene gives us an image of a clean and swaddled baby with cute animals and guests surrounding them. But anyone who's been to a birth or around someone who's given birth knows it's nothing like that. There's blood and there's pain and there's tears, lots of them. So in all that, in that postpartum strangeness for Mary, strangers come to see the baby. Um, and they give gifts. And amongst those gifts are burial spices. Like... <laughs> That's a lot to take in. In Luke 2, it says that Mary kept all these things to herself, holding them dear deep within herself. And we know too that Mary and Joseph are poor. They're not people of means. When they take uh, Jesus to the temple, you know, take him for his circumcision, uh, it says that they offer um, a pair of doves or pigeons. Uh, it actually says in Leviticus 12, like the actual offering for that would be to bring a lamb. But if you are poor, there was this accommodation just to bring the birds. So we know that um, Joseph and Mary, they, they didn't have any great means as well. Um, and whilst they're there, uh, a man named Simeon prophesies over Jesus. And he says to Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too. And if there wasn't enough drama for one family, an angel um, again appeared to Joseph. And it says in Matthew 2, it says, God's angel showed up again in Joseph's dream and commanded, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Stay until further notice. Here it is on the hunt for this child and he wants to kill him. Joseph obeyed. He got up, took the child and his mother under cover of darkness. They were out of town and well on their way before daylight. They lived in Egypt until Herod's death. This Egyptian exile fulfilled what Hosea had preached. I called my son out of Egypt. Um, and Herod, when he realized that the scholars had tricked him, flew into a rage. He commanded the murder of every little boy, two years old and under, who lived in Bethlehem and in its surrounding hills. So with the real threat of Herod wanting to kill their son, Mary and Joseph do what thousands, if not millions, of other parents have done over the course of history to protect their children. They leave the country. Um, there was a quote from Warson Shire I read recently. It says, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. So Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt. Mary is a new wife. She's a new mother. She's in an unknown country with unknown customs and languages. There's no family, no home. There's an uncertainty of safety. And there's an uncertainty of provision. And, you know, I wondered, did Mary hear about the massacre that had happened at Bethlehem with these babies? Does she know some of the women who lost their sons? You know, does she carry any survivor's guilt in that? And once she returned to her home country, when they came home from Egypt, she would have tried to return to normal. Um, what did that look like? You know, did Mary ever worry when she saw soldiers? Was she reluctant to leave Jesus alone? Mary, mother of the Messiah. Mary, mother of salvation. Mary, mother of grief. The grieving often find themselves on the edges of society. Mary finds herself at the center of the nativity. For all the trauma she might have been carrying, we find her closer to God than anyone else. And for those who are traumatized, broken, grieving right in the middle of God's presence. Thomas Merton, a Trappist monk, said, Into this world, this demented inn, in which there is absolutely no room for him at all, Christ has come uninvited. But because he cannot be at home in it, because he is out of place in it, and yet he must be in it, 
His place is with those others for whom there is no room. His place is with those who do not belong, who are rejected by power because they are regarded as weak, those who are discredited, who are denied the status of persons, tortured, exterminated. For those, uh, with those for whom there is no room, Christ is present in this world. And come, all ye who are defeated. This is the story of Israel. We see firstly angels in Genesis 3 when they're stationed at the edges of the garden as man and God are separated. Communion was broken. And that could have been the end of the story. But God keeps showing up. Covenant with Abraham, wrestling with Jacob, an exodus from Egypt, priests, kings, prophets. God stayed in contact with his people despite their rebellion until he didn't. Israel was conquered by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, and suddenly there was silence. For 400 years, Israel didn't hear from God. No prophets, no dreams, no angels, nothing. Silence when they were conquered by Greece. Silence when they were conquered by Rome. Silence when the Roman general Pompey desecrated the temple. You know, Israelite uh, belief means that if you go into the holies of holies, you're going to be struck down. Uh, And yet, this Roman general was just able to swan on in and and wreck the place. There was no burning bushes, no divine messages, no pillars of cloud or fire. There'd be moments of pushback and revolt in that 400 years, but ultimately it all proved to be hopeless. Perhaps you feel a bit defeated at the moment, tired of the silence of feeling conquered, like hope is slippery. Um, Towards the end of World War II, um, during the liberation of Europe, Allied troops found an inscription in a basement in Germany written by someone um, hiding from the Gestapo. I pronounced that wrong yesterday when I was speaking it to telling in my message, and like he made such fun of me. Anyway, <laughs> sort of weird you say very often. Um, anyway, so this um, inscription, and it was poorly written uh, in the side of this basement. It said, I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. I believe in love even when feeling it not. I believe in God even when God is silent. The silence of God descended upon the cross on Good Friday, and on the morning of the third day, the sun rose upon the empty tomb. So at Christmas, we sing glory to God in the highest. What happens? The angels appear uninvited. They appear to Zechariah, to Mary, to Joseph, even to the unremarkable shepherds. And instead of blocking the way to God like in Genesis, they're now announcing that it's time for the path of God to be opened back up. After centuries of oppression, centuries of silence, God's messengers bring good news of great joy. And finally, come let us adore him. We are in the now and the not yet. We are subject in this lifetime to feelings of doubt, grief, and defeat. But Advent isn't just looking back to Jesus. It's not just looking back to this you know, little nativity scene, this baby in a manger. It's also about a future hope that we have in him. We live in the in-between, the time between the first and the second coming of Jesus, between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. Uh, Fleming Rutledge, in her book um, Advent, she says, The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that that characterizes life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In the Advent tension, the church lives its life. So for those of us who doubt, who grieve, who feel defeated, we have hope. 
In Titus 2, it says, This new life is starting right now. It is whetting our appetites for the glorious day when our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, appears. Um, and in the book of Revelation, I've been surprised with this Advent. This is this whole new thing for me, reading this Advent story and these posts that we put in the Facebook group, that how often Revelation is coming up. Um, in Revelation, it was a pastoral letter written by John um, to a bunch of churches that were being oppressed at the time. Um, when I was at um, Bible college, my lecturer, he used to call it the fifth gospel because it's all about Jesus. Um, and it's, it's actually a really beautiful book. Um, there doesn't need to be the fear that we've attached to it. And uh, in Revelation 22, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears, hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. He who is, faith, is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Uh, Richard Buckham, in the Advent series that we're using in the Facebook group, um, he says, It is though he comes to us already ahead of his final coming and gives us a foretaste of the new creation. For this is what salvation is. We wait for him because we have met him already. We have a hope that we can cling to, and his name is Jesus. Richard Rohr says, we're able to trust that he will come again, just as Jesus has come into our past, into our private dilemmas, and into our suffering world. A Christian past then becomes our Christian prologue, and come Lord Jesus is not a cry of desperation, but an assured shout of cosmic hope. And for the rest of us who currently might not be uh, suffering any doubt, any grief, or any defeat, we are to love. Christmas reminds us of God's redemption plan for the world through Jesus. Pentecost reminds us of Jesus' future return. And in between those, it's where we're situated. What is required of us? A cruciform love. Paul David Tripp defines love as, Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. Ephesians 5, it says, Watch what God does, and then you do it like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. I just want to end um, with a uh, poem from Howard Thurman. He was a civil rights leader in the last century. And he says, When the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and the princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flock, the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among brothers, and to make music in the heart.